Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, girls, plebs, pleblings and plebets, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Introducing Mark Moss. I'm sure you've all heard of Mark before and followed his work. He has his own podcast. He's got a YouTube channel. He has a radio slot on iHeartRadio. Talking about all things Bitcoin. He's doing a great job and uh, brilliant work within the space of trying to help Orange Pill as many people as possible. Really appreciate you coming on, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, We delve into uh, his recent work with Svetsky. He's got an announcement to make. And his cycle theory, which is um, very worth listening to. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. Before we get into the interview, I will give a deserved shill to the sponsors of the show. You know where you can stack sats now. Long-term sponsor of the show is Swan Bitcoin, based out of the US of A. SwanBitcoin.com forward slash bitten. You can start stacking there. Use that code and you will get a free 10 bucks to uh, kick yourself off. Across Europe, we have similar services. You could use coincorner.com. They are based in the Isle of Man. You can use euros or pounds with these guys to set up your auto buys. Also get your own LNURL lightning address and get some sats back with their affiliated partners. Make sure you check into that as well. All information on the website, hit the link in the show notes. Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash bitter. And that will help you save on commission and get you stacking across Europe. Bitcoin Reserve, they can help you stack daily up to a thousand pounds a day and also hold your hand if you are looking to tie on a bigger position. 50 grand and over, you're gonna get a wet, uh, a wet glove, a white glove service. And they're going to make sure that you are fully up to speed with uh, you know, your own self-custody. They will not take charge of your Bitcoin. That is on you, and they will make sure you do that in the safest way possible. Please also make sure you are taking control of these coins. You shift crypto.ch forward slash bitten to get yourself a Bitbox 02 hardware wallet. That's Bitcoin only edition. And if you want to get across to the conference, this is 6th to 9th of April. It's coming up. Use the code BITTEN at checkout to save 10% on all of your tickets. General admission all the way up to Whale Pass. Prices are going up and tickets are becoming more scarce. So make sure if you want to get there, look into it. Please check the travel restrictions so you know what you're getting yourselves into and that you can get across there. Day one is industry day. You can go and network if you are building yourself a Bitcoin business and you need to hire people or find those backers or people with experience, go ahead, get there. Make sure you are shilling your product. Day two and three will be all of the general conference stuff, all the speakers, Bukele, Sailor, Back, Stark, they're all gonna be there and more. Day four is the Sound Music Fest. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Guys, check the link in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this show with Mark and thank you so much for listening. 
All right, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, Frenzy, uh, it's, a, it's an honor. Uh, I love following you. I know we've had a few chats back and forth, so uh, stoked to be here and talk to you today. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. And uh, last time, well, when we were setting this up, you were on location somewhere with Spetsky doing a, like a smashing out a book or something. So let, let's yeah, get the lowdown. Shh, that's we top secret. That's top secret. <laughs> no, uh, we haven't officially announced it, but uh, yeah, Alex Fetsky and I, we we uh, locked ourselves in an Airbnb for like four or five days and just had a steady stream of coffee. Well, he doesn't drink coffee. I drink coffee. Um, and uh, yeah, we smashed out a book and uh, a book sprint. Um, as I've, I've heard about them, I've never done one before. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that briefly. Um, as a matter of fact, maybe uh, by the time this airs, we'll have a little uh, kind of a registration page. But basically what we've done is we took maybe one of the most prolific books in the world, a book that just won't die, a book that's infected, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions of people at this point. Um, and that is the Communist Manifesto. So we took that book, it just won't seem to die, and we basically rewrote it. So we took the book, uh, the Communist Manifesto, and we wrote a new book called The Un-Communist Manifesto. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to take the same structure of the book. And, and uh, most people have not ever really read the book, nor really should they. But um, I, uh, I talk a lot about Marxism and socialism and I've studied communism and I've studied Marx's life and all these things, but I had never actually read the Communist Manifesto until last summer. Actually, Svetsky and I and some others went down to El Salvador and I, and I had read it right before that and I brought it down there and I, we were discussing it. And um, it's just a booklet. I mean, it's just a little booklet. It's kind of like um, Rothbard's Anatomy of the State or Bastiat's like the law. It's, it's, uh, it's 8,000 words. It's a 45 minute to an hour read, you know, depending on how fast you read. Um, it's four chapters, 8,000 words. And we thought, we're just going to take that book. We're going to rewrite it um, as like a public service announcement. Like we're just trying to like really kind of expose Marxism for what it is, uh, the flaws, and then provide the contrast. And I think Marx, um, you know, he outlined struggle, all humans struggle. There's always a struggle. Um, it's a struggle to survive. Uh, Marx outlined, well, Marx and Engels outlined the struggle between classes. Um, Hitler showed the struggle between races. Um, we redefined what the struggle is. We believe the real struggle, the new axis, as we call it in the book, is between the individual and the collectivist trying to put them into groups. That's the struggle. How do we remain an individual versus trying to be co-opted in this group um so that's the angle that we took we discussed it a lot we went back and forth what, what angles we want to take there's a million ways we could have gone with it um so we ended up with the book it's about ten thousand words a little bit more uh, um and really we're defending capitalism uh re redefining not i don't want to say redefining but re uh yeah redefining uh what capitalism is and isn't um we uh, we spent uh, a few pages of just writing down definitions. So there's like just a word and definition for like, I don't know, 20, 30 words. Um, that's not included in the word count. Um, yeah, and then the four chapters that kind of basically follow the same uh, format. Um, our own kind of 10 commandments like he put in there, like our own call to action at the end. Um, and uh, we hope, our hope is that it's, uh, again, a very easy read, right? Anybody could read it in 45 minutes. You know, I love long form books, um, you know, 
but try to choke down some of these books by uh, Hayek or even the sovereign individual or even, you know, safe's new book, the Fiat standard. I mean, dude, you got to set aside a week for that thing, you know? Um, so this is something that you could just read pretty quickly. Uh, we hope that it will really shine the light on, like I said, what Marxism is. Um, it'll hopefully take off and, and be very well read because it's easy and maybe we can do something to turn the tide. I hope so, man. This sounds awesome. And yeah, I've never read that damn thing. Like you say, should should we read it? Should should we read it? Uh, I well, guess so. Uh, it it depends. I, I would I would probably say yes. And the reason why I say that, I mean, someone like you for sure, I think you should read it. And the reason why is because in a debate, you should always know your opponent's argument better than they do, right? So like, uh, I've debated these uh, I've debated these crypto people so many times. Like I went on the Monero talk show and debated them. And before I went on there, I had to prepare for that. And now, like when I'm talking, like I was at this conference two weeks ago and these people want to come up and, oh, but privacy coins and they want to. And I'm like, look, I already know your arguments. You're going to say this. Here's the definition. You're going to say this. It's kind of like um, in that movie, uh, Eminem's uh, Eight Mile um, at the end when he was like rap battling. He's like, I already know what you're going to say. I'm a white kid. I'm from the wrong side of the tracks. Right. Um, so I think I think you should. Um, it's an easy read. It's it's. Uh, it's evil and it's hard to imagine how it could have taken off as, as much as it, as it has. I think we, we wrote a piece in there why it appeals to people. Um, and it just it, it appeals to people's, um, you know, urge to do nothing and get uh, paid for doing nothing kind of a thing. Right. It gives them a, a justification for that, if you will. Um, we did this cool like matrix. And so what we did is, and what he, what, what Marx did was he talked about, um, socialism, but then he compared it against different types of socialism. So we looked at like capitalism compared it against like different types of capitalism uh, or what people think is like cronyism, for example, or, or colonialism and things like that. One of the big things, the takeaways from that really doing the work was that if you look at what the attributes of, of capitalism are, um, taking your capital, having private property and growing that is, of course, you know, one of the key pieces there, but it's um, protecting private property rights and voluntary exchange are two of those big attributes. And so when you want to say, you know, in the United States, they're saying that like the Amer America was built on capitalism as slavery, right? Or colonialism is slavery or monopoly. Capitalism leads to monopolies. Well, colonialism or slavery doesn't protect private property rights. And it's not voluntary exchange. So if you remove those attributes and all you focus on is taking private property and growing it, well, sure, then there's all types of distortions, but it's almost like the above all else, protecting private property rights um, and voluntary exchange are almost kind of like some moral guide rails, if you will. And that's, uh, I'm looking forward to this. And it, the reason being today, I don't know whether you've seen it going around Twitter, uh, the, the, little clip of klaus schwab addressing harvard i think it was in 2017 if you haven't seen it yet you got to go fish it out because he's basically saying along the lines of what we're proud of is uh being able to we, we have penetrated cabinets around the world and we have our um what do they call them young global leader right the, the young right. global leader project and he just yeah. lifted them off like merkel Trudeau, Macron, uh, the Argentinian president. He didn't yeah. even say Arden. I guess she was still in the program and wasn't the superstar she was about to become. And yeah. somebody, I retweeted that out. And then somebody put underneath the, uh, the little kind of matrix picture of what the WEF, you know, their main ambition. And right in the center, 
is where it says a world where leaders take individual and collective responsibility for sus- for a sustainable future. That's exactly what you and Svetsi are talking about, right? Then individual, it's double speak, perfect double speak, where leaders take individual and collective responsibility, but they are the individuals controlling the collective. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I was just pulling that up to see that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really scary what they've done, and and um, I'll, I'll drop it in your uh, DMs one sec. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw I I pulled it up on your. Oh, you got it. Yeah, okay. I see it here. Yeah, the total community members and the penetration that they've had. Yeah, I mean, massive penetration here in the United States as well. Uh, but yeah, that that is what we've outlined as the struggle. The real struggle is that is someone's always trying to co-opt the individual and put them into groups. Um, and today they're trying to drop them into groups based off identity. So, you know, your race, your sexual preference, your gender, right, uh, whatever, which is Marxism. Right. It's uh, it's cultural Marxism. James Lindsay does a lot of good work on this on this subject specifically. But um you know, it's, it's a way where, especially being a white man, especially being an American white man, or um, like, I can't belong in that because I'm not like oppressed enough. So like, if I were to, if I were to try to identify with another subgroup, like, well, I'm non-binary or whatever, um, then maybe I buy a little bit of grace because now at least I'm in this like persecuted class, but uh, we just don't believe that. Right. We believe, uh, natural law. So we talk about natural law and natural order. We talk about how capitalism is not, it's, 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 it's emergent. It's not, it's, it's just the way the world works. I, as a person, human beings, um, we try to get more for less. So we try to innovate. I used to carry rocks, um, one by one, I got tired of carrying them one by one. So I made a wheelbarrow so I could put them all in at one time. And I used my property, which we define bigger. So Marx says that the cap, the 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 uh, proletariat, the the oppressed class, um, he says that they have nothing to offer but their labor. And so we don't believe that. We believe in intellectual capital. So my ideas, my thoughts, my energy—that's all my private property. And so we have a lot more. And obviously, Marx was. Um, you have to understand when he wrote this, I think that's a key piece. And so he wrote this um, one at a time when the industrial revolution was just taking off. So he was really witnessing the switch from the, basically everybody was in the farm and cottage industry, right? At the time. And then they were moving into this industrial age. And I would imagine at that time, it was a brand new time, brand new technology. There was there's probably a lot of bad things that were happening. They were trying to figure it out. It was a whole shift to society, uh, you know, coming from the farm age, right? Uh, my dad grew up on a farm. Um, I visited the farm as a kid. I didn't grow up on one, but you know, the the family works together, and not only do they work together, but they work with other families, right? And uh, you work together in this kind of farm culture. And I would imagine that. To when they went to the factories, the families went to the factories. And so then you had child exploitation or child labor, which in the farm, kids worked, right? Um, and so I, I would imagine there's a lot of that. You know, there was probably new machinery. It probably wasn't super safe, right? They hadn't figured out safety stuff, right? Um, the machines probably weren't safe, nor did they know how to like deal with that. So there's probably, you know, accidents, things happen, I would imagine. So he, that was the backdrop of what he was, of, of what he was writing under. And then also who he was, was that, we didn't talk about this in the book, but um, he grew up uh, from a wealthy family. His parents, I believe, were both attorneys and um, they wanted him to be an attorney, but he didn't want to. He wanted to write philosophy. And he was mad at the world that he couldn't write philosophy and live. 
he didn't want to actually have to do a job that, that the market valued. He wanted to write philosophy that the market didn't value. And he was mad he couldn't provide for his family. He had a family, he had multiple kids, and he was a horrible father. He couldn't provide for his kids. He would leave for long extended periods of time. I think one or two kids, it's been a long time since I read about him, but one or, one or two of his kids died of like malnutrition, mal malnourishment. He couldn't take care of his family. Um, so I would imagine there's a ton of resentment there. So he was angry at the world. Why couldn't he just survive? You have these, these, um, these, uh, these capitalists that all they do is bring money. That's all they do. They're worthless other than their money. And then they're exploiting all these people. So I think when you see it under the backdrop, it sort of makes sense why he had that point of view. Um, but of course we've, you know, found all that's now no longer true. So then the ideas should die, you would think, um, but they just only kind of evolved. Let's arm people with, you know, what is capitalism? Because as Bitcoiners, you come up against this all the time, right? Oh, you dirty capitalist pigs and you know, the social yeah. justice warriors are out there. It's their favorite thing, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, this is what the, the, the reason that the planet, the, 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 the oceans are boiling is because of all the capitalists. Yeah. And we've got to shift away from this. So help yeah. people understand, arm them with something so that when they come up against that friend or family member that they can, you know, eloquently shoot them down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, I have people say, Hey, Mark, explain Bitcoin to me. Like I'm five and in two minutes. And I'm like, dude, like if that's all, if you're five and you got two minutes, like you're not going to get it. Right. So I would kind of say the same about this definition, but the easy definition, first of all, I would say that I've sort of abandoned that word and tried to just use free markets. Cause that's mm -hmm. pretty self-explanatory, but Alex was really like, no, let's redefine what capitalism is. Right. So Again, I think it has those three attributes, right? So it's 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 my private, it's protecting private property rights, and we define private property rights as anything that's me or an extension of me. So from my thoughts to my words, my actions to my the use of my energy, um, and this is uh, a little philosophical. You would get this, but I don't know if most of your listeners do. But if I um, if I'm, if I eat food or, you know, if I eat food, I'm ingesting calories. Those calories are energy in my body. Then I expend that energy. That's my life force. When I, if I don't, if I don't expend all my energies, my body will store that as fat. That fat on my body is like my battery. That's my, that's my life's battery. I don't have to eat now for an extended, extended period of time because I have that fat on my body. So that's my battery that allows me to live, continue living if I don't keep having food all the time. Um, I could expend that energy. I could burn those fat calories digging a hole. Let's say if I have to dig a hole for four hours to earn enough for me to live. So that's enough food and shelter for me to live. But I could work an extra four hours, spend an extra four hours of my life battery um, than I, more than I need for the daily sustenance. And then I could store that energy and money that could then be used as a later date. So now that money is kind of like the fat on my body. It's my stored energy that allows me to use it at a later time. So then tomorrow I don't have to work, right? Um, and then I could use that stored energy or I could, I could buy a cow. And now that cow could feed me for a year and I have a year's worth of battery and, and then a house and a ranch and, and, it, and it just continues on. So that's what we define private property. It starts from our intellectual capital all the way through our energy and anything that our energy um, produces. And so... Um, one, protection of private property rights. Um, two, voluntary exchange. So uh, again, slavery wasn't a voluntary exchange, right? A voluntary exchange means both parties think they get the better end of the deal, right? Both, both people are trading for something they value more. Um, so I think those would be the key attributes. And then um, 
as an individual or really in capitalism, we're motivated by different things. And, and I would say one, we're motivated by profit. And that's a good thing. And this kind of goes into some uh, Milton Friedman stuff. But um, capitalism is allowing me to choose my private property and direct it in a way that I see fit, because it's my private property. Um, and back to, you know, if you want to talk to some of these friends and family, these neighbors, um, why it's not bad is because the market will dictate what is bad and what isn't bad. So for example, if you drive by the local high school, there's signs of like the local real estate agents and local businesses. And why are they paying to sponsor a high school team, for example, because of profits? They want to show their good actors in the community. So those people in the community will then choose to use them. And so if people think, well, these capitalists are just greedy and they're going to destroy the world. Well, not really, because if I saw a company that was destroying the world, I would choose to not use that company, right? So for example, Apple. <laughs> Apple wants to lobby against the government to prevent any reason why they, or, or stop any reason why they would be prevented from using slave labor in China, for example. Um, so we should maybe boycott them. Now, the market is so messed up in a way where it doesn't allow the people at the top to fall. So this is perversions on capitalism. So we have like a version of cronyism. And it basically allows the people at the top to stay at the top. In a true open competitive system, a voluntary exchange system, they would be falling and people would be rising. And so um, because we have a perverted system, um, people think it doesn't work. I guess. But anyway, that, that'd be the simple definition. Bitcoin fixes this. Uh, yeah, Bitcoin fixes this, right? Um, so we think that uh, Bitcoin puts you into a system where you would either be able to succeed or fail based off your merits, as opposed to, again, this kind of cronyist system that uses uh, fake money to continue to prop yourself up and then use government to put, you know, basically borders in to, you know, prevent people from, you know, taking you out sort of a thing or compete against you. Yeah. Well, I can't, I, I can't wait for it to come out, man. Uh, so we, yeah. We so can, probably, uh, I don't know when you're, when are you planning on airing this? We, we can, we can coordinate. So it's, okay. uh, yeah. When, you know, no rush, whenever you and Alex are ready, I think we next can, we week we're, it. I think next week we're going to open up the page. It's going to, it's uncommunist.com uncommunist.com. And, uh, we're going to open it up and then start doing pre-orders. Our plan is to, um, I think we're going to run a little Kickstarter campaign, um, try to get an, a little bit of money going just so we can get the books printed and whatnot. Um, and then uh, try to get them done and have them ready for the Bitcoin conference here in a couple months. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. We're going to sell the book for basically, you know, printing costs. We're not trying to make, we're not trying to get rich off of this. We'll probably put it up at like seven bucks or whatever it is, something like that. It, 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 <laughs> It's very uncapitalistic. <laughs> it is very uncapitalistic, but um, you know, yeah. for us, it was more like I said, more of like a public service announcement, uh, public yeah. good, as opposed to you know trying to trying to make a bunch of money off the book. So um, we'll figure out how to make money another way. We got a uh, we, we got some good reading coming. I had Gary Leland on the show, and I'll link that to the next question actually, uh, because he's the the uh, well, he runs the bit block boom. I can never say it. Bit block yeah. boom uh, conference. Yeah, in Dallas. So he was part of the book sprint with Jimmy, and they've got their book uh, drop in pretty soon, if not already. Uh, so I that's that. that's one extra. And Canute has um, promised the community: if you're listening, Canute, we're going to hold you accountable. He's going to have his third book ready for the conference. Wow! So there's some reading material coming our way, plebs. Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you good. just can't we stop need, we, this. 
we need it. We need the education. Uh, yeah, I saw them doing that book sprint. That was one of the things that kind of motivated us to do it as well. I know Jimmy's done a couple of them now. Um, I'm also working on a bigger book that's taken me a long time. Maybe I was thinking this summer, maybe it'll be this fall. Um, but it's, uh, this three, th this three cycles thesis I've been working on and really trying to put that in with like historical facts and figures and a lot of stuff like that. So, um, You've something later up. this year, something You've teed me up perfectly because this is where I was going because I watched yeah. that, um, presentation you gave at bit block boom i was watching yeah. that on a youtube live channel and uh well done really excellent uh, a great presentation really enjoyed it uh and it, it's funny because uh, a friend of mine um at sir badminton big shout out uh he um i told him about that uh, and i think uh, he followed up and watched it and then he he put me on to uh laser hoddle's first episode appearance with with marty Mm -hmm. And I swear, I thought that was just you with some kind of voice kind <laughs> of uh, special mic thing on because the first hour or so of that interview, he was talking about like cycle theories and, you know, he was uh, you know, yeah. fleshing out his thesis. He's gone on since then and, uh, and added on top of it. Uh, are, are you, so this is what the book is, is about. This is what you, you just kind of, you've taken that presentation of yours. It's been like um, churning around the mind and now that's turning into a book. Yeah, um, that's basically it, right? I mean, I kind of, I framed it out. I put it into three YouTube videos that totaled like two hours. Um, and then I kind of shortened it down into that Bitblock Boom Talk, which was like 30 minutes. Um, and I've talked to a handful of people about it. One I did with Peter McCormick kind of really went pretty viral. He said it's like one of his top downloaded podcasts ever. Um, but the thing is, is that, um, I mean, to give you a third, I, I can give you a five minute version of it. I can give you a 30 minute version of it. Uh, a lot of people, um, well, the response has been overwhelming. They love it. A few people are critical of it. Like, oh, you're too general. Oh, you're cherry picking facts. Oh, you're not, you know, whatever. Right. And it's like, I mean, dude, it's 30 minutes. Like how much can I give you? Right. So that's why I'm writing the book. So I can put like all the facts, all the charts, all the dates and really try to make it definitive. But again, that goes back to the, can you, can I explain Bitcoin to you uh, like a five-year-old in two minutes? Uh, if you want the five-minute version or 30-minute version, I can give that to you, um, but it doesn't have the teeth. If you really want to know, you really want to understand it, then then you got to put more time in. Proof of work, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and people can go find it, right? Like you say, it's out there on the YouTube uh, or they can watch the BitBlock boom, start with that and then watch the YouTube and uh, and whatever else. But yeah, I got well, yeah it was like I said, it was really to address those people who said it was us oh, too general or, oh, you're cherry picking facts or whatever. So it's like, oh, I'll give you the data, the data that I've found, but it takes a little bit more time. So, uh, yeah, that's coming. But, uh, yeah, we can certainly talk about it. I think it's super interesting. I, uh, I love laser hot. We talk all the time. As a matter of fact, we did a two and a half hour show together yesterday. Um, me, Hoddle, Laser Hoddle, Svetsky, and Untapped Growth. Um, it's a, it's a follow-up to Svetsky's podcast, uh, Wake Up, which was uh, F the Great Reset, mm -hmm. which he said was his number one downloaded episode ever. So we did a follow-up to it yesterday. We did two and a half hours. Um, and of course, uh, I mean, they're, they're all amazing people, uh, all four of them or three of them. Um, and I love what Laser Hoddle's doing. Um, obviously we align a lot on a lot of the stuff. I think one of the big differences is that, um, he's really focused on this uh, monetary reset. So everything, you know, he keeps uh, tweeting and everything is about this great reset. And it's because of the monetary reset and it's running cover. And, and that is true. I think it's bigger than that though, in my opinion.
So uh, we agree. Um, the other thing that we uh, have a little bit divergence on, as we found out on the podcast yesterday, is um, we both see this kind of 2025 date as like a, this climatic event, this date, and really it's, you know, 2024, 2026, something like that. Um, it's what comes after that, uh, where we, where we end up in 2030, that we're pretty, pretty different on, on that side. So Interesting. Um, a lot of overlap, but, but a little bit of differences. And of course, nobody knows. No, that's the beauty, right? The, the, the thing is, what I want the plebs to, to take from this is these are, this is a thesis, right? It's not like either of you are saying, this is going to happen. This is how it happens. And this is how we get there. It's like, no, I've taken a look at the data I have at hand. I've seen, I've looked around me, what's going on. It's all going crazy. What could be like putting yourself in the position of the leaders of whoever they are is becoming more yeah. apparent. Uh, and then trying to think that through as a business model. Uh, you know, if I were them trying to run this business and if they believe their business is shepherding the world into you know because they've got some like crazy notion that they think they're ordained to be able to have this power and it's only them that you know these people clearly are psychos yeah uh, but what would they be doing and how would they you know so it is just a thesis yeah um it, it but yeah, it's so interesting think... it's intellectually stimulating to go down these roads right yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's super fun to, to think about it, um, you know, imagine it and, and discuss it and kind of spar back and forth with it. Um, I think it also, one of the big things that I see, uh, you know, in the world of investing and, and thinking about this thing is um, one of the biggest things um, people tend to agree, but then they start to disagree is the timeframes. And that's one thing we always have to establish. So I had a live conference, uh, Market Disruptors Live, um, in November of last year, and I had Greg Foss come and talk about bonds, and I had Stephen Van Meter, who's like the YouTube self-appointed bond king. And Stephen Van Meter is like, no, I think bonds are a great trade, and I think there's a ton of money to be in bonds, and you should be in bonds. And Greg Foss, of course, is like, bonds are the worst thing ever. You're an idiot, right? So I had them both there, and then we did like a panel, and I wanted like fireworks, right? But it turns out they actually agree. The difference is the time frame. Right. So Stephen Van Meter believes that there's this short period of time where bond rates are going to rise and you could probably make a really good return on that little bit of a bond rise. Um, where, and, and then he believes that they'll blow up long-term. Greg Foss is just talking long-term, they're going to blow up. So they actually agreed. It was the time frame that, that they disagreed on, but nobody knew that. Nobody could pick up that nuance. Mm. Um, and so it really comes down to, and, and you see it in Bitcoin all the time, right? Like, oh my God, Bitcoin's down off its all, it's 45% down off its all-time high. Okay, yeah, um, sure. In the last whatever thirty days, yeah, it's down forty-five percent, but it's up. You know, <laughs> uh, what time frame are you looking at? Right, it's up three hundred percent. It's up a thousand percent. It's up fifteen hundred percent. So it kind of comes down to that. And then, and then, is Bitcoin a good store of value? Well, it hasn't been a great store of value for the last thirty days, but it has been a great store of value for the last 12, 24, 36, 48 uh, months, ten years, right? And so, if you look at the price of Bitcoin every single year, the lowest price has always been higher. So it's been a great store of value. If you look at a 10-year um, range, um, I believe it will be a great store of value over the next five years and 10 years. Um, but if you looked at the last 30 days, it's not. So it's always that time frame, I think, that uh, changes things. And so the reason why I say that is kind of back to this kind of cycles talk. Um, I believe, you know, to the point, like these leaders, uh, I hate to use these words. I, I've, I've, I've gotten away from calling them elites. Um, so right. it's key kind of said, hey, we can't call them elites anymore. I wouldn't hire any of these guys to work at my company or whatever. And I would agree with that. Um, but they're leaders. I mean, they're the ones that are kind of calling the shots. And so uh, what I would say to that is um, 
timeframes. So yes, they're kind of making these maneuvers. And um, as you said, like we're trying to guess like what's in their head, what are they going to do next? But I think timeframes, they're managing things on a very small scale on a short, you know, within a few years at a time. Um, but there's much bigger trends that are in play. And it's regardless of what they try to do, these trends are going to play out. I don't think they can stop them. And so again, timeframes, like I think we're, we've been, the world's like pen, it pendulums back and forth on different time scales. Um, we are on this like 250 year time, um, time scale pendulum. that's about to swing back. So like, I'm looking out like over the next hundred years. Right. So it kind of depends on that time frame, I guess. I've seen you talking about the, the pendulum swinging uh, from, you know, one end to the other. And I, I guess it depends on what subject as well. I suppose it's not just, you know, like a, a huge, it's like, you know, are we swinging back towards the individual away from the collective? Are we swinging back towards um, all of it? Uh, oh, all right. Okay. Go ahead. All of it because riff. Human, it. riff. Yeah. So um, if we want, if we want to, if we want to, so if we want to kind of dig into this, so if we start yep. backing up and so I would say, yes, laser hodl is right. We're at the end of this 80 year financial, you know, long-term debt cycle. Um, at the end of a long-term debt cycle, you have to reset the system um, all of that is true, I think, um, but it's in part of something much bigger. And um, you don't necessarily need to understand what's bigger. I think, you know, for looking at a short term, that's good. But if I, if I look at it bigger, what I'd say is that um, as progress goes exponential, the world's changing super fast. Um, so even though progress is changing um, exponentially, um, we're humans and we have human nature and we kind of repeat the same cycles over and over and over. And so things are... Um, things are reactive. We go so far to one way that we went too far and then we come back the other way. And then we go too far that way. And we kind of go, it's like, it's like bowling and you put the bumpers up and they just kind of hit from side to side to side. Um, and I think if you look at, if, if you look at a uh, technical analysis on a start uh, on a chart chart on a chart, you have like the trend and you'll see it, it goes above the trend line. And the further it goes above the trend line, the more it'll snap back below. And the further it snaps back below, right? The more it reverts back. And so you kind of see this, all throughout nature. And I think that's why the pendulum swings, it swings back and forth. So it happens in a couple of different ways. So um, a couple of things, one, oh, you yeah, got well, your daughter we've, coming in the studio. We've, 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 been, we've been interrupted. Am I gonna uh, get a question? Yeah, you are. Yeah, she generally asks the first question as, as you probably know, but uh, she was busy in a French lesson. So yeah. she, she's had to come and interrupt us at a very interesting. Well, good, point. I wanted a question. So yeah. uh, okay. I, got, I, got a, I got two daughters as well. They don't jump on my podcast though, but I wish they did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, well, do you want to fire away then? First question is, so I heard that you had a podcast. Uh, yeah, like, we, like you just said. Uh, why did you start a podcast? The reason why I started a podcast is because in 2015, when I first bought Bitcoin um, and I really kind of started to understand what it was, I finally realized that we, we actually had a tool that we could win. We could win back our freedom, our sovereignty back from the state that's been used in this money system. And at that point, I said, I have to tell everybody I know about this. And so I've been trying to tell as many people as I could about it ever since. Right. And uh, when did you start the podcast? Um, I started the podcast in, I started making YouTube videos first. So I started making YouTube videos in uh, the first part of 2018. So it's been about four years ago. And um, I started the podcast probably about a year later. So about three years ago, probably. And now he has a radio show too. 
yeah, yeah uh, now I, I was I was gonna ask about that uh about the radio shows so the radio show does anyone um listen to the radio show <laughs> yeah I think I think I think a lot of people do um you know, it, radio seems like it's dying. Like who the heck li listens to radio anymore? But apparently in, in, in America, a lot of people still do, uh, billions of people. So um, basically the way it works, and this is a great question and a great answer for you, is that the way it works is that you have to put something back out into the world in order for people to find out about you and come back. So I look at it like a lighthouse that would send its light out and it brings the boats back. Right. And so I started the YouTube. I didn't even know what I was doing. It was actually my old business partner that kind of forced me to start making videos with him. Um, and I started doing the YouTube videos and then I started doing the podcast. But um, the number two executive at iHeartMedia, which is the largest media company in the United States, well, largest radio network, I don't know if they're the largest media company. Um, and the number two executive there was a fan. He was watching my YouTube videos and he recruited me and he said, Hey, I love what you're doing. I don't see anybody doing exactly what you're doing. I, I, and, and they recruited me. So, um, you know, that's the lesson is, is put yourself out there, put your information out there. It brings the people in, uh, but they recruited me. It's been since October of last year. So is that about four months now? And, um, I think it's grown really well because they're trying to expand it as fast as they can right now. And, uh, they, what's, what's actually really encouraging about this is that, um, they see this massive trend for alternative news and they're like, you know, you kind of do this politics, finance, and tech. No one's doing the intersection of those three, which of course is Bitcoin. <laughs> um, no one's doing those three and they really are trying to move into that. And I have my third meeting with them today about launching something really, really big. And I'm, I really love that because it shows the appetite. People are really wanting this information. You do that in studio? Are they like close by or is this all done from, from home? So uh, mostly from home uh, and from my home studio. And then they do have a studio in LA. Um, obviously all the radio stations are in LA. And so I have my own studio there with my own engineer and my own producer. Um, typically I'm coming in remote, but I was up there uh, two weeks ago in studio. I'm going to go back up there next week and be in studio again as well. That must be cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, I can do the same at home, but uh, in my home studio, but for some reason being in the LA studio with my, you know, the full soundboard and my, all my people there, it makes it, I feel different about it. It's like putting on a suit to go to work kind of a thing. Um, so it does make me feel a little bit different doing it. I have a little different energy. Um, and then I'm going to start trying to, you know, bring in a lot of more special guests because people go through LA all the time. And so then I have the studio for that as well. That's awesome. All right. Do you have any more questions? No, no. Okay. Do you want to say good so? Morning? So start putting out my advice to you is to and I, and I love what you're doing, by the way, like I said, I wish my daughters would do it. Um, but I would continue trying to put some content out into the world. So uh, we're not to be consumers, we should be creators. So you create that content. Um, and you don't know where it's going to go. And so I, uh, I encourage you to keep going with it. All right. All right. You got, you got some buy-in. Love it. Thanks, Mark. See you. Bye. Bye. How old is she? Uh, 11. Just okay. turned. I have a, I have a 12 year old. So, um, I've been trying to, uh, trying to encourage them to, um, not be consumers, be creators. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I love, I love what you're doing. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, it's it was, the homeschooling. It's the homeschooling. Right. It is. Have you gone down that rabbit hole as well? 
Well, you know, a lot of people kind of, a lot of times will ask me my backstory and, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my, my mom homeschooled me and my sisters for like, uh, several years. And that was at a time when it was not popular. And as a matter of fact, it was very, very frowned upon. Um, but a combination of that, you know, growing up in that, in, in, in a family that would do that, first of all, that plus, you know, mostly just going to private schools my whole life, I believe has enabled me to look at the world differently. You know, 100%. I think, I think, I think it's, uh, I think, one of the worst things about school, in my opinion, is it takes away your creativity. Mm -hmm. It teaches you to think or what to think like a robot, not to question things. And that's the that's the single biggest. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hate to say the single, but pretty much the single biggest uh, gripe that I have with school. And um, I think the homeschooling or at least private schooling gives you a little bit more kind of creative outlook, which uh, moving from the industrial age. Um, there's a great book written by this. You'd probably be interested in this. It's a, a whole new mind by Daniel Pink. Okay. And he talks about how the whole world was built analytical. And this is actually, this actually aligns with my, with my cycles. So from the, from the start of the industry. So if we go back, so I look at things in like 80 year cycles. So yes. I'm going to, I'll weave this in. So check this yes. out. So, so um, we can look at things in different cycles. And so um, from like a political, social, cultural level i look at it like in 28 year cycles and three just like uh, financial markets or like uh, charts you have like uh, fibonacci levels or mathematic and you have like triple bottoms so three times 28 equals 84 so then there's this big 84 year cycle and then three times 84 equals 252 which is this big big revolution cycle and then we have these 500 year cycles and so we can kind of look at this so um if we go back 500 years ago about we had the start of the um, Renaissance age, which was the, the age of enlightenment, the greatest explosion of humanity where we had science and art and technology had, had been. So that was a, that was a shift of the pendulum that was hitting the creative cycle. Then in the 1700s, 250 years later, we started the industrial revolution and that started an analytical cycle. And for the last 250 years, we've been on this analytical cycle. And now that pendulum is about to swing back. And so let me explain that real quickly. There's a bunch of these cycles, but we went from creative to analytical. And so everything, the industrial revolution has created everything analytical. Our entire school system is set up for analytical thinkers. We have two sides of our brain, right? The creative and the analytical side. And they used to think that we didn't need the creative side. They'd actually even do lobotomies on that side. Like, oh, what do we need that side for? And so our whole school system is set up for that, like SAT scores and you know all those things. Um, and that was an important skill during the last 250 years. But the world has changed. And one of the big changes, just like what preceded the, the 1500 shift, the Protestant Reformation was 70 years before was the uh, printing press. That's what really led to that shift. And that's when I talk about there's big trends at play. It doesn't matter what these small people do. Like this is a big trend. So that printing press had kicked off what would be this Protestant Reformation, which would then lead to this explosion of uh, art and science. Um, and we have the same thing. And so the whole world's been analytical, um, but the internet kicked off about 30, 40 years ago and has completely changed things. And it's the catalyst for what's happening right now. So what, in, in this context, what's happened is the whole world has now been connected. And what used to be the best jobs in America was like my parents would say, hey, go, go be an engineer. Like an engineer is a really good job. Be a programmer is a good job. Be a coder is a good job. Yeah, but today I can hire them for five bucks an hour in India. 
Like I can go get a dozen of them for like nothing. Right. Um, and so while that used to be a good job, now it's a commodity. And so when you used to make a lot of money being that engineer coder today, I can go hire them. And so the world has shifted. And so now we're moving from this industrial age to this information age. In order to make an information age, you have to be creative, no longer analytical. And so in order to be successful moving forward, and this is kind of the thesis of this book, in order to be successful moving forward, we need to be creative thinkers, not analytical thinkers. We need to be like a conductor of an orchestra. I can't play a musical instrument better than any of those people, but I know how to get them all together and produce beautiful music. That's a creative thought, right? I see a problem. Um, this, if this new software was developed and it could do this, 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 and this, it could solve this big problem. Okay, I don't know how to build the software, but I see the problem. I see the solution. I can go hire the coders and the developers to build that for me. Right. So um, anyway, that's the thesis of the book and back to school and the creativity piece, but also it's part of this cycle shift where the world shifted into this in for the last 250 years has been this industrial pendulum swinging. And now the pendulum is about to start swinging back to this creative stage, um, which leads to this kind of Renaissance 2.0, which is a, another interesting topic we could talk about. Um, but we'll get ahead of ourselves on that. <laughs> <laughs> And this is where Bitcoin fits in so perfectly, right? That, that, that was the missing piece. And Satoshi, I, I guess Satoshi was the conductor. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, you know, I mean, Bitcoin was emergent. It was discovered. It was created. Um, I, yeah, I guess he was the I guess he was the conductor, right? He took bits and pieces of things that were already there and put mm -hmm. them together creatively. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he didn't necessarily build each individual piece. He just kind of put them together and reorganized it. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, but in context, back to the cycles, um, I think if we really look back and again, so if we kind of focus on this 80 year long term debt cycle, like Laser Hoddle talks about when, and again, I agree with him on that, but like, how did we get there? Like, and so that's like the bigger piece. As I said, there's these bigger things that are in motion that they can't stop. And so if you look back, um, back to the Protestant Reformation, it was very interesting. And it's actually very interesting in the time, uh, context of today, um, so at that time, we had the Protestant Reformation, which the church and the state were together and they controlled everybody and they controlled what you read and what you said and what you did, all these things. And you had all these um, chivalry acts that you had to do to show your you know, uh, allegiance, things like that. And again, as I said, right, the printing press came before that and disrupted that. And once that information got out there, the church couldn't contain it. And so... Um, it represented to me the way that I look at this historically is that the church was a central central entity. It was a central planner. It was, it was a centralization and they offered only one way to salvation. And that was what they said. But once they, the, the first book that was printed mass printed was the Bible. And once the people got the Bible, they said, wait a minute, all these things you've been telling us are wrong. Um, we don't need you. Well, we don't need you to go through you. We can have our own relationship with God. We can have this decentralized path. And they did. And so people started talking out. It was heresy, heretics, et cetera. The church would kill them instantly. You talk out like you're dead and they probably killed millions of people, my guess. Um, and, but no matter what they did, they couldn't stop that trend. And we see the same thing today, right? Where all of a sudden the internet has now allowed us to see the emperor has no clothes on. Henry Ford said it over a hundred years ago. If the American people knew how the banking system worked, there'd be a revolution before morning, but they've kept all that hidden. But today we see everything. They can't stop it. Joe Rogan's getting 200 million listens and CNN's getting a couple hundred thousand, right? 
Um, and so we see that, but the same thing is happening today, right? They're trying to maintain this fake charade. They're trying to maintain their grip and they're killing people, you know, online, they're assassinating your character or deplatforming you. Um, and, and, and there's casualties, right? But they can't stop it. it, it it's, it's a force that just can't be stopped. The trend is too strong, in my opinion. And that's only one piece of it. So, so we started this pendulum shifting. And, and to kind of show how this works, once that grip was broken, we had this explosion of technology and science, and et cetera, which was great, which then led to the start of the Industrial Revolution. So really, that's where the world shifted. About 300 years ago, the whole world was dirt. <laughs> Everything we have in the world today has been really created in the last 300 years. I mean, obviously there was, you know, some, you know, little brick buildings and whatnot, a story or two high, but, you know, skyscrapers and bridges and airplanes and spaceships and all that has all been created in the last couple hundred years. Um, but what that did is that industrial revolution started to centralize things. And so people started leaving these farms and these decentralized work areas and started centralizing, coming to the cities and to work in factories. And then it started centralizing in countries. So if you really wanted to be wealthy, you had to move to you know, Western Europe or the wet or in the United States. But then you couldn't even just be in the United States. You had to be in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco. And so it started really centralizing all this. And I think that allowed this nation state to continue to grow really, really big. So as the industrial revolution happened, so did the nation state. And it got very easy for the nation state to grow and amass its power because the return on violence was so high. So it could easily just say, well, you're in my area, you're going to pay me whatever you want, you know, whatever I want. And what are you going to do? Pack up and move your factory, right? You can't do that. And so it allowed these nation states to grow really big um, and extract whatever resources they needed to do because that return was so high. But now here we are 250 years later, and we have the, the not the printing press, but we have the internet, which, is, as I said, has opened up those eyes. But what it's also done is it's allowed, just like um, after the Protestant Reformation, it's allowed us to start moving out and decentralizing. And so um, today, really kicked off by the pandemic, in the United States, for example, you used to live, have to live in a city, San Francisco, so Silicon Valley is there, but you don't have to live in Silicon Valley anymore. And so now, out, places out in the middle of nowhere, I mean, uh, you know, for an international audience, but like Wyoming or Idaho or Colorado, places that people would love to live but couldn't because there's no jobs there, now it's like the hottest real estate in, in the country. So everybody's now going to live where they want. They're leaving the cities, but they're also leaving the country. So now I can go to Mexico or I can go to El Salvador. Or I could go wherever I want. And so as that starts to spread out the giant nation state, that's been very, it's been very easy for them to grow their um, power because they had this captive base. They're starting to lose their relevancy, not just through the information like the printing press did, but also the people are starting to spread out as well. And that's just a trend that just can't be stopped. Like no matter no matter what, you know, President Biden or whoever tries to do, like this is a bigger trend in play. Um, so I think that's one of the really key pieces that's there. Of course, um, as they started moving out, the problem was that the money was still centralized. And so I can leave and I can go to Mexico. Well, a couple of things. One, you know, you had these big factories, you know, Ford Motor Corp, for example. But today it's all small decentralized companies, all these little Internet companies all over the world. Um, and, they're, and they're distributed teams that work all over. But I could just, if I don't like what the U.S. does, I could just move to Mexico or El Salvador. But if they still control the money, the SWIFT system, um, and that's where Bitcoin really comes in. So I think that's the, if we, if we start from a high level, that's what's going on from a mega political shift. And that's why I think regardless of what, what happens on the small scale, that they can't stop that.
And that's what keeps you so optimistic. And yeah, bullish. that's what that's what makes me optimistic. Um, that I mean that, and we can kind of dig through these. But overall, from a super high level, that's what makes me optimistic. I think this trend is in play. There's nothing that can be done to stop it. It's not political. It's just. It just is what it is. It's just the way that we organize as human beings and the way that we work um, changes based off of these mega political factors. And I think when you view it from this historical lens, you just see that it just can't be stopped. Now, as I was saying, there's kind of these 84 year cycles and there's three times 84 equals 252. So every 250 years is really this revolution cycle. So 250 years ago was the American and the French revolution. And then, of course, 250 years before that was the Protestant Reformation we've been talking about. And just like the Protestant Reformation, the, the, Indust or the American Revolution and French Revolution were the same thing, rejecting the centralization, rejecting the globalization, and setting up in, in, in the American Revolution, setting up a decentralized government. So America was set up as a republic with independent states. And so they rejected that and set that up. So about every 250 years, uh, we have that cycle that happens. And again, that's kind of the pendulum. But again, um, one 250-year period, it moves to analytical. The next 250-year period, it moves to creative. So there's that pendulum oscillating in that 250-year time frame. Um, so I think that's one. And, and if, I, if I talk about the 84-year cycle real quick, about every 84 years, we have what, uh, what I call a populist uprising or a regime change cycle. And I think this one is important to understand that in the 250 year, because what, what's going on in the world today seems very random. It's a black swan. Who could have ever known that a virus was going to rip through the world and the governments were going to put all these mandates into effect and everybody would be in the streets pushing back on mandates? Well, history could have told us that <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a black swan from a historical context. And so the reason why I say that is every 84 years, approximately, um, we have this populist uprising regime change. So 84 years ago was the end of World War II, Hitler, Mussolini in the United States. We had FDR's New Deal, which changed America from like capitalist to socialist. 84 years before that was what we were talking about was Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. And it led to the European Spring it was the largest revolution in European history. And so about every 84 years, this happens. And so while this seems random, who would have known these mandates would be there? Well, History tells us it's time. And as a matter of fact, if we go back even before, if we go back to December of 2019, before the pandemic even was even heard of, we already had 10 countries with over 1 million people each in the streets marching. It was already happening. We had Hong yeah. Kong, you know, being taken over by China and we had Argentina and Chile and Lebanon and on and on and on. So France it was already well. happening. The, the pandemic shut it off temporarily and all it did was just change the reason why the people were in the streets you're in france you had the yellow coats right yep. the yellow or yellow jackets or whatever they were and they were protesting against supposedly it was against like the gas tax or whatever yep. right but really it was against globalization that's what it was really against right and so all of these things while the issue that the media tries to tell you why people are protesting it was against gas hikes it's against mandates no 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 what it's really about is globalization, centralization, right? Um, that, that makes so much sense. And when, so has this, this has obviously helped you through the last uh, 18 months or two years of madness, surely having studied this and seen what's happened in history and then come to the realization, uh, well, oh, oh, of course this was going to happen. And then having that long-term view and realizing that 
well, now the genie's out of the bottle, there's no way they can stop this pendulum swinging back. It doesn't matter what they do. But then right, writing this, this book with, with Alex and coming at uh, capitalism from the standpoint that you did about private property uh, and that starting with their own intellectual thoughts uh, and you know complete bodily autonomy and what they're trying to do with vaccine rollouts and mandates and stuff like that, which has affected so many people psychologically, like really damaged people that, uh, you know, that yeah. you've been able to kind of lean on this framework and this thesis to see, uh, right, you can see a way out of this? Like, Yeah, well, I think it does two things. One, um, the mind is just like, what the heck is going on? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, why is the world so crazy? How did we get here, right? Well, I think it brings a lot of uh, answers to that, which I think is helpful. Um, but also it, it makes me hopeful for the future. So we need hope, right? And so a lot of people just have this, uh, this never ending despair at this point. Um, but so that's like the political, social, cultural cycle that happens on like these 84 and 250 year timeframes. Um, but what's interesting is that I'm talking about there's three revolutionary cycles that operate on different timeframes, but they're all converging right now. So while that's like this political cycle, which uh, as we just talked through, like people are in the streets uprising, um, we then also have the 80-year financial revolution cycle, which, of course, is what um, Laser Hoddle keeps talking about, and I agree 100% with him on that. And that's also happening right now, to his point, climaxing in about 2025, which is the same time as this political revolution cycle is climaxing. Uh, we'll talk about that, but I know you've covered that extensively. The, the third one is this technological revolution cycle, and this is the one that I think is really interesting. So you know, K-wave cycles or chondrative cycles or whatever you want to call it. I call them technological revolutions. Um, there was a book written, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital, I believe is the name of it. And um, they basically talk about a, a financial revolution is not, I'm sorry, a technological revolution is not a new technology. A new technology is the iPhone. That's a new technology. Um, and what a new technology does is it extends things. It improves things. A technological revolution changes things it changes the way humanity works it changes the course of humanity so the five have been the industrial revolution which we talked about bringing people from the farms all of a sudden now into cities and mass production um, then we had um we had uh, steam engines and railways for all of humanity we had horsepower and manpower and now we had steam engines that could move stuff across across continents it was amazing um, then we had uh steel and electricity so for all of humanity, we could build one or two stories with bricks. Then we could build skyscrapers and bridges. And for all of humanity, we had, well, we, before fire, we didn't have fire. And then we had fire was light. And now we had electricity. Changed humanity. And um, what's interesting is uh, if, if, if you put yourself back in those shoes, what is electricity? Oh, well, you know, it's kind of like this like digital candle. Well, it was, sure. But why do we need that? Candles have been light for 5,000 years. <laughs> Candles are portable. Look how much better they are than, than electricity. But of course, electricity was that, but it became so much more, changed the course of history. Um, then about 60 years later, we had the age of oil and automobiles and mass production, which all of humanity, people walked and rode horses. And now we had cars. We could move products and ship and we could drive um, oil, which we could create energy and do all these things um, that we've done. Um, about 50 years later, we had the 1971 was the age of the microprocessor, which brought us telecommunications, which brought us personal computers, which brought us the internet, which brought us Zoom, which we're doing right now. Um, and that's why the, the, the revolution was the microprocessor that allowed all this stuff. It wasn't Zoom. It wasn't the iPhone, right? Um, and then 1971 plus 50 years puts us at 2021. And I believe we're at the, at the verge of another technological revolution. 
that will change the course of humanity. And so that's that's Bitcoin. That's the decentralized revolution that's happening. And what I love about this is that um, a couple of things. One is that problems are um, solutions are supposed to come to problems. So the problem is centralization. The whole world is rejecting centralization and trying to move to decentralization right now, just like in the American Revolution. Um, and right when the world is rejecting, the pendulum is maxing out, we have a technology that gives us exactly what we need, which is a technology to give us decentralization, which I think is pretty amazing. So, so, so I think that is pretty amazing to look at. The other thing I would say is that um, technological revolutions create financial markets. So the last technological revolution was the microprocessor, computers, internet, et cetera. And of course, the whole market, the FANG stocks, right, <laughs> is, is based off of tech. But before that was automobiles. So Ford, GM, Chrysler, et cetera. Before that was the oil and the steel companies, right? So each technological revolution changes the entire financial structure of the world. So I think that's big. And we'll look at that in the financial revolution cycle. Um, and then the other thing is that all technological revolutions kind of unfold and work the same way. And so they're predictable. And when you understand how that works, then you can start to understand where we're at with this technological revolution cycle. And um, the one thing I would say is kind of like, um, like uh, as humans, we're horrible at imagining the future. All we can do is imagine a better version of what we have today. So um, if we have cars, we'll have flying cars one day, right? Um, but we also try to understand what this is. And so we try to compare it to something that we know. So what was electricity? Well, it was kind of like a digital candle. And it, and it was that. It was, but it became so much more. Um, when the internet first came out, it was a way to send electronic messages. And it was that. But today our cars are hooked to something called a cloud using something called social media to like navigate us around traffic. And so with Bitcoin, what the heck is Bitcoin? Well, it's kind of like digital gold. Yeah. And it's kind of like a Swiss bank account in your pocket. Okay. It's kind of like a censorship resistant network. Okay. Um, it is all those things. But what it is, is it gives us this new platform to build all these things on top of that we have no idea. Like the oldest problem that mankind has had since the first person on this earth has been, how do I protect my private property? That's the oldest problem in the world. How do I protect my private property? Um, we would band together as a tribe and then as a village and then as a kingdom and then as a nation, the, the role of the government is to protect your private property. They, now they do more to infringe on that. Um, but if I had a bunch of, if I had a bunch of gold, I would, you know, I could bury it in the backyard and make a map. If I had a bunch of gold, I'd have to build a safe and have armored guards. And then how could I move that? I couldn't. And like, as Michael Saylor pointed out at one point, he's like, if you had, you know, whatever, a billion dollars in gold, where could you have put that a hundred years ago that you'd still have that? And of course, the answer is you couldn't. So the oldest problem that mankind has had has been, how do I protect my private property? Bitcoin fixed that. We can now store as much wealth as we want with no cost, no effort, no security, and I can take it with me anywhere I want. Now, what are the implications of that? I mean, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know yet. And the kind of like electricity, at the time it was digital candle, but we didn't know all the implications that it would do in the future. And I think that is how big it's going to be. And it's hard for most people to kind of understand that. So difficult. Even for us people that are here and have been studying it for the last handful of years, you still, it blows your mind every time. And yeah. you just, just come into that realization, but then 
then your mind starts running away with the implications, uh, you know, further down the line. Like, well, how could that impact how society, uh, you know, builds itself around this technology in 50 years time? Uh, you know, when you leave it behind, because you are able to leave it behind in its entirety, rather than it just being inflated away or, or stolen, um, you know, or, or buried in the back. You don't need to do that anymore. It's just 24 words. Uh, it'll probably be more sophisticated by then anyway. Uh, yeah. you know, because there's, there's always solutions coming out. So when you riff on this, uh, because I've had, uh, a, a chat with Svetsky as well. And I think, uh, the title to that episode was all your cycles are broken. So does he take the, the like, do you have, uh, I'm looking forward to your, your listening to your, your second part, because I listened what? to the first one on the wake up pod. Uh, so where's Alex coming from in your mind when he's saying all your cycles are broken? Because I think he's, a- he's, I think he's talking about the financial cycles, right? Mostly. Um, and so I think he's, he's thinking about the financial cycles mostly. And so kind of, uh, even, even, uh, sailor said like all your models are broken kind of right. thing. Right. Um, so I, 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 I think it's in that context, but to be honest, I, I really don't know. So I'd hate to put those words in his mouth. Um, but what I would say is then, um, this moves on to the third part, which is these technological revolutions create financial markets, mm-hmm. which then goes into what Laser Hoddle talks about this long, this financial markets being reset. And um, like I said, uh, Laser Hoddle and, and I kind of agree on this five-year climax, but what happens in 10 years, we disagree. But Svetsky and I both agree on the 10-year right. and the five. So Svetsky and I are seeing more eye to eye on the five and 10. So to, to your question... Um, when he says all your models are broken, I, I guess I don't really know. So I'd hate to put the words in his mouth, but uh, I think we both agree on the five and 10 years. So we can talk about that, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty interesting. Um, but as you said, like um, you've thought a lot about this. You've obviously talked about this extensively with other people. And um, you start to think about like, where does this lead us? How does humanity shift from this? And you start to think, it cha- as you just said, it changes the way that we work and where we live and how we organize and interact. So when you think about it in that lens of just of a technological revolution, how does it change the course of humanity? But then you look at it in context of this bigger 250-year cycle where the world is starting to reorganize and shifting from an analytical to a creative side. And then so you look at those two things together. I mean, it gives it a whole new context, in my opinion. Um, and then, as I said, these technological revolutions are what drives these financial cycles. And again, that's on a 50-year cycle. The, t- the financial cycle is about an 80-year cycle. Long-term debt cycle is about an 84-year cycle. And so one's a 50-year, one's an 80-year, one's a 250-year. But they're all converging right now, which is, which is amazing. And so if we look at this long-term debt cycle, as Laser Hoddle has, has talked about, um, and again, it's in my cycles thesis as well. We're at the end of the line here. If you and I were playing a game, we're playing, I don't know, whatever, Scrabble. And I look and I'm like, I'm out of moves. I'm out of moves. What do you do? You reset the game. Right. You reset the game, right? And so um, when you look at the world being run by these central bankers, um, I believe we've really had a coup of the of the, the central bankers have taken over the world. Um, and... Uh, the central bank tools are monetary tools. Really, they have control in, in you know interest rates and the monetary supply. That's that's it. And interest rates are at zero or really negative. Half the world is negative. Uh, most of the world is negative anyway in real rates. Um, so they're so what what can they do there? Uh, not much. Um, 
we've added over, you know, over $300 trillion of debt in 50 years, uh, 20, 20 trillion in just the last 24 months. Um, so how much more debt can they, can they do, right? The, the, what happens is the money printing has diminishing returns. I mean, it, it goes against natural law. You can't just create money out of thin air. And so there's something known as the Keynesian multiplier. And the Keynesian multiplier says that once a nation gets over 90% debt to GDP, um, they're kind of at the point of no return, meaning that <clears throat> what happens is when I lose a dollar out of the economy, I try to borrow 50 cents to get the dollar worth of growth. But what happens is eventually... I don't get a dollar out of 50 cents. I only get 75 cents. And then I get, then I borrow 50 cents. I only get 50 cents. And then eventually I borrow 50 cents and only get 30 or 40 cents of growth. And so then I'm digging myself deeper in the hole. And that's where we're at right now. <clears throat> you know, we're up at over 130% debt to GDP. <clears throat> so that's, uh, nations don't recover from that. They don't, they don't recover from that. So what, what do you do? Well, you have to reset the game. So 84 years ago was the Bretton Woods agreement. What was the Bretton Woods Agreement? That was a point where the world, after World War I and World War II, created so much fake paper money that the game was over. They had to reset the game, and they did. They created the Bretton Woods Agreement, which was the entire world went on to a new financial system, monetary system, a gold-backed system. The dollar was you know, backed by gold, et cetera. Everyone was pegged to the dollar. And uh, <clears throat> last year, we saw the IMF head, Kristalina Georgina, whatever her name is, she called, she said, quote, we're calling for a Bretton Woods too. That's what she said. So she said, what does that mean? That means reset the financial system. Of course, Klaus Schwab is calling for the Great Reset. I have his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. Um, most of the other leaders, you see him talking about this, you know, Great Reset, or they call it Build Back Better or whatever. And so we see that they're trying to reset the system. Um, and so what happens is after the financial system crashes, one of the best ways to cover that up is war. It's war. And so war always covers that up. And so we've had, we're two years into a war, right? Two years into the COVID war. Um, and uh, now it's going to be, you know, maybe a cyber war, and then it's going to be a digital ID war, and then it's going to be a climate war, et cetera. But I think that's where they're trying to cover it up. And, you know, kind of where Laser Hoddle and I agree is, is both in this sense where um, <clears throat> we're at the end of the cycle, they have to reset and um, they want to do it in this like controlled demolition way. Um, I believe that just shows their hubris. They can't control this. And I believe it'll get out of control. Um, and it, what, and it's what comes next is I think where everybody's looking. And so from a financial standpoint, how do I set myself up to survive from a sovereignty level? Because the, these, these globalists are trying to take away my freedoms, but also how do I preserve my money so I can get through to the other side of this cycle being reset? And again, if you're only looking at that financial revolution cycle, it can be very scary. So a lot of people are saying, will the dollar remain the reserve currency of the world, right? For example, that's one of the biggest things that you hear going around. Is the Fed going to be able to save the dollar? Will they print and destroy the dollar? Will the Chinese yuan take over? Will that be the next reserve currency of the world? Or uh, um, will the IMF get an SDR, digital SDR? Maybe that'll be the new reserve currency, right? And that's something that I think could happen probably in a little bit of a longer time frame. A lot of people think that we're going to go back to a gold standard. You know, once the currency is destroyed, the only way that they can bring some trust back to the currency would be to try to back it with some gold again, right? And while those are all good theories, and we could, I think there's, we could argue either side of both, any of those. I think what's happening when people ask that question is they're missing the bigger context. And the bigger context is the future, they're all looking for a centralized answer, but the future is not centralized. The future is decentralized. And so while they're looking for this 
powers on high to come in and declare this is the new reserve currency. And greatly uh, and rightly so, these powers that be will probably try to do that. The majority of people will just be out of that system. So for example, Bitcoin has been my reserve. I'm sure it's your reserve. We've seen S&P 500 companies like MicroStrategy make it their reserve. And now we see nations like El Salvador making it their reserve. And so we're all just opting out one by one by one, and they're losing their grip. They're losing their power. And while they may, you know, I'm not predicting the dollar dies, the dollar probably stays around. It just becomes way less relevant um, and so forth. And the central bank digital coin would be another lever for them to pull. Yeah. And, th and, that's, and that's definitely where we're going. And that, you know, then when we start getting into timeframes, and again, this is where kind of laser hot and I kind of agree. Um, I've been predicting all this climaxes around 2025, um, and as, as he does as well. And there's a couple of things in that one from a cycles level. So on your calendar, it tells you the day spring starts, but it doesn't mean the weather changes exactly that day. Right. So it's, it's plus or minus. Right. And so, um, these cycles are converging all around 2023 to 2026 kind of a thing. So 2025 seems like a year that I'm kind of pegging, he's pegging. But um, one of the reasons why also is because, you know, the Fed uh, in the United States has, has, you know, put out about $8 trillion in the last 24 months to keep the markets from crashing. Globally, about $20 trillion, as I said earlier, to keep the markets from crashing. So it's like they want to keep the markets from crashing, right? That's what they're saying. That's what they're doing. Um, and a lot of people, you know, now the central banks are kind of stuck. Like if they keep printing, inflation keeps raging. If they stop printing, the markets are going to crash. Like, what are they going to do? How are they going to save the markets? Well, that shows a bias that you think they want to save the markets. Most people don't think about that. What if they don't want to save it? Then it's a whole different way of thinking. And so why would they not want to save it? Well, they wouldn't want to save it if they need to create a new system. And, um, you know, the technologies that are going to be important for that are obviously, you know, the, the, the vaccine passport thing, um, central bank digital currencies and digital IDs, right? Those are all going to be three of the main pieces. Um, and the central bank digital currencies are coming. I mean, China's already had theirs out for almost a year and a half, two years. They've been testing it. I think it's an official rollout at the Olympics here coming up. Um, you know, the U.S. has just escalated their central bank digital currency. I think was it was a couple of days ago. They put it out for guidance and now they're asking for comments and whatnot. Uh, Europe's working on it as well. Um, I think that needs to be ready. They need to have that ready before they can switch everyone over. So I'm thinking that they probably want to try to keep this game going for about another 24 months, 12 to 24 months, until those central bank digital currencies are ready. At that point, the market can crash. They blame it on a cyber attack. So um, they've been warning us about the cyber attack. As a matter of fact, they ran tests on the cyber attack, just like they ran tests on the, on the COVID response. And when I, I read what, what, what their games were and what they said was that uh, what they gamed out is that we'd have this cyber attack on the financial system. And the way that they would respond to this would be a bank holiday. So when they seized gold, that's exactly what they did. They shut the banks down. They did it in Cyprus. They did it in Greece. Uh, they shut the banks down. When they open the banks back up, you get about 50% of your money out. Um, and what they, what they could do, and this is all hypothetical, obviously, but um, this is what they wargamed out. This is their words. They do a bank holiday. And then I'm speculating from there, but what they, maybe what they do is they say, okay, hey, um, we, the whole system crashed because these cyber terrorists. And um, 
due to no, no fault of our own. Um, but in order for you to continue using the web, it's not safe anymore. Look what they did. They, they crashed the whole world. Uh, if, if you, 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 no more anonymous use anymore. Now you must use this global ID. And uh, in order to open the banks back up, we need your global ID. And then you, you're going to start using this new central bank digital currency. Um, and that could be the switch. So maybe they want to keep that going until that's ready, which it looks like it could be another you know, 24 months, which puts us right around 2024, 2025-ish. Um, so I don't know. It's theoretical. There's another big event happening then. Around well, May 5th. Uh, what's that? Around May 5th, 2024 is the next Bitcoin halving. So mm. that all just comes in very, very nicely. And if they're waiting another two years, that's, that gives us another two years of runway just to keep, keep content like this coming out, the books, the pods, the videos, yeah. the, the, the radio shows. I don't think they can wait that long. Well, but it's not about it's not about waiting and then like a light switch moment, right? It's a it's a it's a it's a spectrum. It's a progress and progressive progressive shift. So if you look at like when the U.S. dollar took over from the pound sterling, it wasn't like it happened, right? It was like a thirty year process. And so I think we're in that thirty year process now. We're seeing the shift happen. Um, our job, you and I's job, is to get as many people over into the new system to limit that blow, right? If uh, if the Titanic's sinking, if we can get half the people off onto life rafts, then it's not as catastrophic. Not as many people go down with the ship. And so I think that's kind of where we're at with that, is uh, trying to get people off, off of that ship before it's too late. As much as we can, mate. As much as we can. Um, El Salvador. I know you hung out there for uh, for a bit. Yeah. What were your initial thoughts and what have, your bit, what have been your thoughts as you've come back to the States? Uh, what's, what's been going on in your mind ever since? Yeah, so I've been to El Salvador a couple of times. Um, I love it down there. I, uh, I spend a lot of time in Mexico and Central America because I'm a surfer. So I spend a lot of time down there. And I love it because it gives me this perspective shift and you kind of see how they're living and, and uh, how poor they are, et cetera. But um, it wasn't until I started working with some people in Bitcoin Beach that really I even noticed actually the real thing that's going on down there. And I hadn't really looked at it from a, from a kind of a global financial system perspective. Um, I would say one of the big things that most people just don't understand is that, um, well, people have probably heard the numbers, but like about two per the UN, about two billion adults in the world have no access to the financial system. And the reason why they have no access to the financial system is mostly because of permission. They don't have permission to join it. And um, I believe that the iPhone has been the greatest equalizer in the world. Um, you can basically meet anyone, learn anything, and do anything from your mobile phone. A kid can start an Instagram account. Your daughter could start a YouTube channel and make a million bucks, right? So that's the great equalizer, but not if you can't join the financial system. Not if you can't join the financial system. And that's the problem that most people have in the world and in El Salvador. So while they can join the financial system, um, they, you know, they can do that. They use the dollar there. The problem is that um, like in America, you have to pay to have a bank account. It costs 15 bucks a month or 25 bucks a month. Now, they typically waive that fee if you keep a balance. But in El Salvador, they don't have enough of a balance and they don't get those fees waived. And so it costs anywhere from 25 to 50 bucks a month to have a bank account. But those people make a few hundred bucks a month. So how can they spend that much on a bank account? The answer is they can't, which is why they don't and they don't have bank accounts. So, the, so most people in El Salvador don't have bank accounts. And also the merchants are the same thing. So in order to have a merchant account where you can take credit cards, um, you have to have 15, 20 grand a month of, of, uh, of uh, revenue and they don't do that much. 
So they can't take it. So you have all the merchants, the stores, and the people, they're completely shut off of the global financial system. They can't participate in that globally. And so now, of course, they can, right? So now they can download a Bitcoin wallet. They can get sats sent right to their phone, and they can participate, and they are. So I think that is massive. And again, you know, these are trends. They take time to play out. And one thing that you see and I see all the time is that people go, Bitcoin's too volatile to be a medium of exchange. And if 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 El Salvador adopted Bitcoin in September, how come the whole how come it's not the best country in the whole world right now? It's like, dude, really? Like these things take, like I said, the dollar took over this down pound sterling. It was about almost 40 years. Like these things take time. Um, but if you can just stop for a second and imagine this evolution process and imagine where this goes, it's 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 pretty amazing. Um, the other thing I'd say about El Salvador is that, um, you know, being in the United States, which I still would consider, you know, probably one of the best countries in the world to live in um, for many, many reasons. It's also um, it's also sad and it's uh, frustrating to see because we're on this like steady decline. And so while we while really we're still really good, uh, we can see that the future is looking worse and worse. Whereas in El Salvador, it's it's very bad. <laughs> it's very poor. I think they're ranked 107 on GDP. Um, I mean, it's it's one of the you know it's one of the most poor countries in in the world. It's below the poverty line or b- below the 50 percent level on that. Um, but even though it's so poor and there's not a lot of services, um, it's on the rise, right? It's on the rise. Uh, they have a president who's you know pro capitalism and he's 40 years old and he gets this and. Uh, He's doing a lot of things to bring, you know, entrepreneurs and investment capital in there and all the people have hope. And so even though it's not as good as the United States, the air and the energy and the hope and the excitement around it is very contagious. And I love what they're doing. And what I would also say is that um, back to this kind of cycles thesis, um, we can see the whole world is trending towards this totalitarianism and this globalization thing. And, and, and they're getting technology that gives them the perfect um, the perfect way to kind of keep people entrapped and enslaved, right? Through social media and, of course, central bank digital currencies and these things. And um, when I think about that, um, I think about how does that trend break? And I think that trend breaks through competition, not through guns, not, not violence. It breaks through competition. And so we saw in the United States, uh, Texas and Florida outcompeted California and New York. And uh, both governors found themselves on the chopping block. One made it, one didn't. Um, but what happens when you know the president of El Salvador said, "Hey, everyone can come here. We have no more mandates, no more testing, uh, no taxes. Come make as much money as you want." Well, guess what? A lot of people are going there. Oh, and now they're doing their own bond, right? And so it's attracting all this investment capital, all this mind share is going there. And then what happens to the country next door? Well, us too. We're, we'll also be free. Uh, and then, then the country next door will also be free. And then eventually enough people leave the oppressive countries that they're forced to change, just like China was forced to compete, right? So uh, China was, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world after, you know, they, they became so communist and socialist in the 80s, they had to open it up and the, a little bit of com- capitalism to come in so they could compete. And of course, now look where they're at. And so they did that not because of a bloody revolution, they did it because they were forced to compete. And that's what I think is going to happen. That's why I think El Salvador is so big. It's not just what's happening there today. It's that it's the first one that starts this competition loop. 
And if we get another two or three countries going, I mean, this will really take off. And then again, by yeah, 2025, I mean, the world's going to look way different. It certainly is, mate. And yeah, I'm full of, uh, I'm full of hope, which uh, of course I link directly to Bitcoin. All right, I'm going to round it off with the last question. Yeah. If you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? Well, I would say, I would say at this point, I would probably give it to, I'd probably want to give it to, I'd say I'd give it to Joe Rogan because he's got the biggest, uh, you know, he's got the biggest reach right at this point. I just, uh, I, I hesitate to say that because I, I, I kind of think he's already kind of going down that path. Um, so I don't know if he really needs it, um, but he could definitely be pushed over the edge. Um, but I'd probably say him because he, he's got, I mean, hands down the biggest reach in, in the nation, maybe in the world. Um, so I'd probably start there. Excellent. Well, mate, how can people come and find you? Because they're going to want to know more about you if they've not heard of you already. Yeah, man. Uh, so just go to my website, one Mark Moss. That's the number one Mark Moss. Um, you can find all my stuff there. I make a couple of videos a week on YouTube where I try to break these kind of complex financial subjects and make them easy to understand. Um, you can search Mark Moss podcast and find my podcast as well. I'm speaking at the Bitcoin conference. I'm excited about that coming up. So come and connect there. Are you coming? Wow. Well, they need to knows? lift some restrictions, first of all. Yeah, 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 we, I know. We, it's difficult for the Europeans to get across there. Um, so yeah. we'll, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Yeah, it's, it's shifting really fast. I mean, it's starting to fall apart. I don't know if they'll repeal stuff they put in place, but it's, the narrative's cracking really, really fast. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, go to my website. Um, find me on YouTube, Mark Moss. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, too, too active. <laughs> uh, uh, one Mark Moss on Twitter as well. And then, uh, yeah, uh, check out the book, uncommunist.com. All right, man. Well, it's been great, Rip. Really appreciate you giving up the time and coming on and everything you're doing, all the content you're putting out there. Can't wait to read the book. Thanks, Prince. All right. See you, mate. Yeah. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And Mark, thank you again for coming on and everything that you're doing within the space. Can't wait to see this. Hope we've coordinated this perfectly. And you and Alex are getting these copies of these books into as many people's hands as possible since we recorded this so much has happened oh my goodness the uh the hong kong hod the hong kong hoddle gang have done amazing work trying to help out the canadian truckers if you're not aware of what's going on follow that handle on twitter that's benny sessions greg foss and jeff booth doing some great work there so this space is moving so quickly and the work that people like Mark and Alex are doing with this book is going to help wake up so many people, I am sure. So go and check that project out as well. 2022 is going to be a crazy year. It's going to go down in the history books. Mark, my words, there's a lot of things happening. We're going to have more announcements this year, whether that's companies or countries or both and more, uh, you know, adopting a Bitcoin standard or, you know, going on to bitcoin as legal tender whatever it is it's going to be huge look out for it retweet it educate your friends and family about it we've got a lot of work to do but this is not going to stop you cannot put the genie back in the bottle thank you everybody for listening sharing retweeting subscribing streaming whatever it is you do really appreciate that make sure you hit the show notes up because all of the links are in there for Bitcoin Reserve, Relay, Swan Bitcoin, 
Shift Crypto, Coin Corner, and the conference. They're all there. Hit those links and you'll get those discount codes. Make sure you can check. Uh, make sure you check whether you can get over to the conference. And if you can, I strongly suggest you get there. Take care, guys. Catch you on the next show.